0: Our New Testament reading comes from John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, and it can be found on page 576 of the paper Bibles. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holiday 20 or 30 gallons, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it.
1: Today, we are also continuing our sermon series through the book of John. And we now have finished kind of the Advent series on John chapter one, and we're moving in to John chapter two. And I think it's worthwhile for us just to stop for a moment and ask, what is the point of all this? What is the point of studying the entire book of John? And what is this book supposed to be about? What's its purpose? And the good news for us is, Unlike a lot of the Gospels, uh, there there are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's the fourth, John very explicitly states to us what the point is. He tells us why he wrote this book and why he recorded these different signs that Jesus performed. He says at the end, John chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. He said that He recorded the signs in this book so that we would believe Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing we would have life in His name. And that's what happens right here in John chapter 2. This first of Jesus' miracles, it says in verse 11, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We have this account, this account of Jesus' first miracle, and it's meant so that we would believe who Jesus is. But let's be honest, it's, it's kind of murky <laughs> what's happening here in this story. It doesn't immediately make sense, at least to me, why this is the thing that should persuade us to believe in Jesus. Um, Of all the things that Jesus did, why would this be the first miracle that, that John gives us? Well, maybe we need to check our terminology first. I've been kind of throwing out the word miracle, but John doesn't do that as much. He prefers the word sign instead of the word miracle. He over and over again uses this word sign for a purpose. What is a sign? A sign is, is pointing to something. A sign is trying to tell us something. Signs have a purpose. They point somewhere. And that is certainly the case with this first sign of Jesus. This is a sign that's meant to show us something. This sign kicks off the Gospel of John because it is, is pointing us to all the rest of Jesus' ministry. It shows us the core of what Jesus came to do. You might even uh, put it this way, that if you understand this first sign, you're going to understand all the rest of them. This first sign is the key to knowing what Jesus came to do and what he's all about. So, let's see what this sign shows us. It shows us three things. First of all, it shows us Jesus' superiority and authority. Secondly, It shows us Jesus' purpose. And thirdly, it shows us how we're supposed to relate to him. So first of all, it shows us his superiority, and it shows us his abundance. Then it shows us his authority and his purpose. And then finally, it shows us how we're supposed to relate to him. So let's look at this and figure out all those things. How are we going to see this? Okay, let's start with his superiority and his abundance. A pastor friend of mine uh, once told me as as we were looking at this passage together a few years back, he said there's one detail of this first sign, the miracle at the wedding in in Cana of Galilee, that we often overlook. There's one thing that we just kind of breeze over, and it has a lot of importance for us. It's something we need to instead zoom in on. Jesus, in the first miracle, is at a party. Jesus is at a party that had been going on for so long that they had run out of wine. And it's worth noting that, you know, they may have they were they were probably having a good time at this party. They there may have been dancing at this party, right? Jesus could have been doing the the you know ancient equivalent of of, you know, watch me whip, right? <laughs> <laughs> now now, maybe that, that kind of borders on, on blasphemy, right? As I said, but I think that even is worth pointing out, right? We don't think of Jesus that way. And it's worth stopping to consider that the first picture we have of Jesus is as a normal person living life, going to a party, enjoying himself. Our perception of Jesus often has a major impact on how we perceive the whole Christian faith. Who you think Jesus is changes what you think it means to be a Christian. And our culture just doesn't really associate Christianity with joy. We don't seem to associate following Jesus with pleasure. We think Christianity is what? It's it's serious business. It's being somber. right? Who are the greatest Christians? Well, of course, they're monks and they're nuns and they're People who spend 12 hours a day in silent prayer. That's what it means to be a good Christian. And that life's not attractive to us. That seems like a drag, right? Christians in the room, let's be honest. When you think about uh, the description of heaven as being a place where you're worshiping God for all eternity, don't you sometimes think, man, that sounds kind of dull. <laughs> like, oh, man, I better, I better do some fun stuff now, because, oh... Well, this passage starts off with this picture of Jesus at a party to prevent us from ever thinking that way again. It shows us first in the setting, just in the setting, that Jesus was not a joyless, emotionless man. But then as we start to look at the sign itself, we realize the point of this sign is to show us that following Jesus is anything but unfulfilling. Following Jesus is anything but dull. Well, how is that? How does this sign show us that following Jesus is not dull? Okay, well, what's the sign? Let's talk about it. It's in verses 6 through 8. It's pretty simple. They're at a party. The party has run out of wine. And so he goes and tells them to get these pots of water. And it's between 100 and 150 gallons of water that he turns into wine. And it says they take a sample out of it and they walk it over to the master of the feast and read what happens in verse 10. The master of the feast tastes the wine and says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. In some ways, the point is very simple. The point is, what Jesus gives is better. It's more abundant. It's beyond compare to anything that came before it. Jesus has the good stuff, and he doesn't hold back. He has it filled abundantly, all the way to the brim. And I think this speaks directly to one of our main objections to following Christ. One of the main objections we have when we come to Scripture and see all the things that Christ teaches you know, one of my old neighbors uh, back in Dorchester uh, was a great woman. She grew up in a Christian home and occasionally would come visit the church. Uh, even when we were first starting to gather a group of people and talk about beginning this church, she came to our house and, and attended some of those meetings. But she herself wasn't a Christian. And when I talked to her about that, uh, she would always say, well, I'm going to be a Christian. At some point, I'm going to become a Christian, but you know, I'm just not ready to stop having fun yet. (laughs) I'm just not ready to stop enjoying life. And isn't that the case? So often we think of obedience to Christ as something that's boring. You know, we think, well, I've got to give up the good stuff now, but later on it'll be great, you know, in eternity. But Jesus is showing us here through this miracle that. His wine is superior and he is superior that the stuff that we're chasing after now this temporary world the thing that we're looking for to fulfill us and to satisfy us is just a pale imitation it's just a shadow he's trying to tell us that he is more fulfilling not less And it's no contest, right? When the Master tastes the wine, he instantly recognizes that this wine is infinitely better. And it's the same for us. Is it not? If you're a Christian in this room, is it not the exact same way when the Holy Spirit comes to you? When, when, when Christ enters your life, isn't it the exact same experience that when you taste what life is like in Christ, you instantly think, what have I been doing? (laughs) This is so much better how could I have ever lived that life before? That's the message here. That's the first point. Jesus is superior. And what he brings is abundantly better. It's better than anything that the world can offer. That's the first thing it shows us. The second thing it shows us is Christ's authority and his purpose. Now we're going to have to get a little bit more theological here. Um, But first of all, we need to look at the scenario. We need to recap some of the details of this story. The first four verses, if you were listening when Sarah read this, it says, on the, fir- on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Okay. Okay. What's happening here? Well, they're out of wine. And that may seem like a small thing to you, but it was probably a bigger deal back then. These wedding celebrations were sometimes uh, a week long and they were, this was a shame and honor culture. So running out of wine would have reflect, reflected very badly on the bridegroom. So this was a minor crisis. So Mary goes to Jesus and she says, they're out of wine. Now, I'm not, it's not certain what she expected Jesus to do, but obviously, she thought he could do something. And then Jesus responds by saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? And you hear that and you think, what? Is, is that the way Jesus talked to his mom? (laughs) Like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. Um, well, it's pretty, you're right. Listen, Jesus is not speaking with total disrespect to his mother. Uh, Part of this is is a translation problem. We can't get this quite right. The NIV says, dear woman, but I think that goes too far in the other direction. I think that tries to make it too soft. Um, As I've been reading about this uh, use of the word, it seems like the closest thing we have to it, if you have any experience in the South, is the way people might use the word ma'am. And not the way someone would politely use the word ma'am, but like, if you've got you know, 20 items in the 12 items or less aisle, and you're in the line, and the lady behind you says, excuse me, ma'am. It's that kind of ma'am. It's, it's, a, it's a rebuke. It's, it's trying to say, this is not the way things are gonna be done. But it's not so harsh, as just a, a dismissive, you know, woman, uh, if we were to, to say it today. Um, but what's the point? Why does Jesus react this way at all? Well, I think the point that John is trying to make is that he's trying to say that Jesus uh, is free from human manipulation. So when Mary starts to to tell him what to do at this crucial point in his ministry, he starts off by saying, uh, you're not the one in control here. I- I'm going to be the one that's in control. And I think John is making a point that Christ, he is the one who has the place of authority. That his ministry is going to be done by the will of God the Father alone. And that's all. But the end of Jesus' sentence is something very specific. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now that's one of those lines that won't make sense to you upon your initial reading. You've got to read the whole book of John and then cycle back around to understand what that line is supposed to mean. It's kind of like uh, watching the sixth sense. You know, Once you find out the the twist at the end, you watch the movie again, and you're like, oh, okay, I, I get what's going on here. Well, it's the same thing with this hour terminology. John frequently uses the word, my hour, to refer to Christ's death. There's a few times where, where Jesus says something like, uh, my hour has not yet come, or John then will narrate a passage and say, "You know, they were about to arrest Jesus, but his hour had not yet come. Or John chapter 12, Jesus says, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So you get this hour terminology. He's talking about his death. It's a special uh, word that Jesus uses to refer to his death. So when he says, My hour has not yet come, that's what he's talking about. Okay. But that makes this a really strange conversation now, doesn't it? Mary comes up and says, "We're out of wine." And Jesus says, "It's not time for me to be crucified yet." <laughs> like, what what does that what does that mean? Why why would he respond like that? What's going on here? Well, as I've read about it this week, most of the commentaries say what I just told you, that Jesus is talking about his death, but the person uh, who I think gave me the most insight in this was, was Tim Keller. And he had just a very uh, helpful illustration. Remember the context here. Jesus is at a wedding. And uh, Keller says, if you have ever been at a wedding uh, and you're unmarried, you know if, when you're single or if, if you're unmarried and you're at a wedding, what is it that you're thinking about at the wedding? Usually, at least it's been the case with me, you're thinking about your own wedding. You're thinking about what it's going to be like who that wedding is going to be with. Who's that person? What's the day going to be? And Keller suggests that's exactly what Jesus is thinking about. When Jesus is at this wedding feast, he was probably also thinking about his own wedding. But the difference is he knew when that was going to be. We, We know about that from the book of Revelation. It tells us about the wedding supper of the Lamb. It gets recorded in Revelation Chapter 19. A couple of verses there. It tells us, it shows us this picture of, of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says, People are crying out, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now we know from scripture that, that the church is the bride of Christ. And it goes on to tell us that it was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the day that Jesus has in mind, the time that he's thinking about, is this other feast. This other wedding supper to come. That moment when his bride, his purified and holy church is going to be brought to him in this great moment of celebration. And as he's contemplating that, his mother approaches him and says, we're out of wine. Now we know something else about that wine from the Gospels. We know something else about that feast from the book of Matthew. If you remember, during the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus grabs the cup and it says, Jesus said to his disciples, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He says, this wine is my blood, and I'm not going to drink it again until the great wedding feast that we just read about in Revelation. Jesus says, the wine is my blood. And that's why when Mary approaches him, with those things on his mind, he says, My hour hasn't come yet. It's not time for me to shed my blood for the purification of the saints. And then, in case you're like, "Ah, that seems a little, I'm not so sure. (laughs) Look at the sign he gives. He says there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification. He took these ceremonial cleansing jars and he turned that into wine. You know, for us, it would be like, you know, bring me a thousand bottles of hand sanitizer. right? I'm going to transform this into wine. The wine that he says is my blood. Are you following me? This is a, pur- a picture of Christ's purpose. This is a picture of what Jesus came to do. He came so that his, his bride could come to the great wedding feast. He came that you, so that you and I could celebrate with him for eternity but the only way he could do that is if he cleansed us first by living a life that we couldn't live a life of obedience a life of union with God right we're told in the rest of this story that Christ didn't believe the lies of the world he didn't think that obedience to God was something dull He didn't think that following God's will would be something boring and unfulfilling, but instead it tells us that he was one with the Father. He lived a life in our place. And then on the cross, he paid the penalty for our rejection of God, for our refusal to acknowledge him as Lord, for our constant decision to to chase after other things instead of him and to live our life in pursuit of them. On the cross, Jesus shed his blood so we wouldn't have to shed ours. And that's what John's trying to point out in this sign. He's trying to tell us that Christ's blood was going to become the source of our cleansing. So that's the sign. It's, it's showing us Jesus' authority. It's showing us the thing that he came to do, providing wine at a wedding feast. That's what he came to do for each and every one of us. The true wine. The wine that Jesus gives is the only thing that can purify us from our sins. It's the only thing that can bring us purified to the eternal feast. So, there's one last thing we need to look at. We need to look at the response. We need to look at the people in this story and how they reacted to this sign when they saw it. Particularly, there's there's two things we need to see. We need to see what Mary did, and we need to see what the disciples did. Because this shows us my third point, which is how we're supposed to relate to Jesus. First of all, Mary. Let's see what Mary did. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. And how does Mary respond? Does she say, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you talk to, to me that I'm, I'm the Virgin Mary, <laughs> right? She doesn't say that, no. She says, it says she turns to her servants and says, do whatever he tells you. She responds with these beautiful words of faith. Do whatever. Whatever he tells you. Why did she do that? Well, Mary knows who Jesus is. Mary knows the story. She remembers where he came from. And I want to say to you if, if Jesus truly is who he claims to be, then there really is no other option. Mary's words to those servants, do whatever he tells you, is God's word for us today. If Jesus is God the Son, come to earth to pay the penalty for your sin, then his plan is the best plan. His plan for you is the best plan for you. Now sometimes that's going to be a difficult plan. Sometimes what he calls us to is going to be hard. Sometimes you'll think that that you know better than what he says to do. Sometimes you're going to be afraid. But if he's God, if Christ really is who he claims to be, then there is no better plan for you. And if he's God, then we can trust that keeping his commands will be good for us, even when they hurt. Mary's words to those servants, they're they're God's words to us today. Do whatever he tells you the path to this joyful feast the way to this eternal celebration the way to what you're looking for is through obedience it's to do what he's told us to do whatever he tells us right here in his word in this bible so i mean a really practical thing i want to say as as an aside here do you have any idea what he's told us (laughs) have you ever read this before you should We're doing this one-year Bible thing. You can be done by December. It's worth it to find out what he's told us to do. If he says that this is the path to life, why not read it? Do what he's told us to do. But don't just hear it. Stop questioning him and do it. Submit to him. Make him the Lord of your life. That's what Mary does. Now let's look at the disciples. It tells us at the very last verse, He manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. It says these disciples of his saw his glory, and what? And they believed. I want to point this out because we're in chapter 2. There is no way on earth they understood this sign. There is no way they fully grasped the weight of what Jesus was trying to tell them. They couldn't possibly. And we know from the rest of the Gospels that they didn't. (laughs) They still had a long way to go. But it tells us that when they saw his glory, they believed. I want to encourage you that way. They didn't need every single point, finer point of theology, ironed out in their head before they would follow Jesus. They didn't need to have all the questions answered. Today, I want to encourage you, if you see his glory, don't delay. Today, in your life, if you feel the lack of glory, don't delay. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're in that place of of just feeling empty. We're in that post-Christmas kind of lull. Maybe you're realizing again that all the toys you got didn't satisfy you again. Maybe you saw your aging family members again, and now, and, and you're reminded of how short our time is. You've got that sense of your own mortality in the back of your mind. Maybe you ate all the food there was to eat, <laughs> gained 10 pounds or so, and now here you are again, hungry. unhappy well the point of this miracle the point of this sign is that you have been invited to a better feast you're invited you're invited to a better life one that is more abundant one that is more joyful than anything you can come up with life in christ it's superior But it's only by this wine, it's only by this cup, it's only by this, the new covenant in his blood that you're ever going to get what your heart is looking for. So I want to invite you now to come with me and let's celebrate this meal.